25 this morning, calling this message, The Beauty and the Beast, okay? Uh, and before we dive in, what I want to do is, uh, what I want to do is this, is just zoom out for a moment, remind ourselves of where we are in 1 Samuel as we've been going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and get their our bearings on the larger account of uh, Samuel, because chapter 23 through to chapter 26 uh, recount for us, tell us about the account of David in his wilderness time while he was on his run from uh, King Saul. And so while on his run, some of the things we've seen about uh, David are this, that while he was in this time of the wilderness, 400 men had gathered to him and had swelled to a group of 600. Uh, all of these men are described as being in distress and in in debt and men who are bitter in soul. Okay, this is a ragtag crew. It's kind of like our church. Ragtag crew of folks that have gathered together around David, a real team of winners. And uh, they became, uh, he became their leader. And in the wilderness during this season, David faced three tests that were to prepare him for kingship. And so last week, Blake walked us through uh, chapters 23 and 24, and we saw the first test that David went through. And in the first test, uh, he spared Saul's life. Remember, David was hiding out in the cave, and Saul came into the cave to relieve himself, and David snuck, on him, snuck up on him and uh, spared his life, but he cut off the corner of uh, King Saul's robe. And uh, afterwards... David's conscience was, was stricken. He had been ready. He had been even urged by those who were with him to take Saul's life while he had the opportunity. And, and he resisted, but he did go so far as to cut off the king, the corner of the king's robe and, and shamed him. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting picture because remember when Samuel spoke of God's rejection of King Saul and when he went to leave, Saul reached out and he ripped off the corner of of Samuel's robe, and, and the Lord said to Saul, uh, said through Samuel to Saul, so the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hands. And so David, to cut off the corner of Saul's robe, was a pretty cheeky, pretty rude, and a shameful thing. And, and so he resisted from killing him, but that was the first of three tests. And then chapter 25, where we're going to be this morning, involves the second test, and we're going to get in, in into this in a moment, but what I want to do is just jump forward to the third test in chapter 26. That's where it happens, where David once again spares Saul life, spare Saul's life. And I want to remind you of what happened in that story because chapter 25 is key in preparation for this with, with King Saul and King uh, and the future King David. In chapter 26, David has this chance to kill Saul. He does this along with Abishai. He snuck into the camp of the army of Israel while they were all sleeping, made his way through all of the tents to the center of the encampment of the army while the army was sleeping, right into the tent of Saul. And there the scripture recounts for us that David and Abishai found a, 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 a spear stuck in the ground beside the head of Saul. And Abishai said, let me, have, let me finish him off. It, it only will take one thrust, I'll pin him to the ground, and the Lord will avenge you against your enemy, and uh, you will be able to take the throne. But David actually said this to Abishai, 
In 1 Samuel 26, verse 9 and 10, it's not on your screen, but I will read it to you. He said this, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's encounter. So David has these two encounters with Saul where he has the chance to kill him. One in the cave, one in the, the king's tent. And in between that is this story that we're about to look at this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 25, where I think something happens in the heart and in the life of David in the second test that David comes to this place and point in his life as he is being prepared for kingship where he comes to know without a doubt that God is his defender, that, that the Lord is his source of strength. David comes to know that it's Yahweh who will protect him, that it's Yahweh who will dispense justice upon his enemies, justice on Saul and against Saul. And David has to learn this, that violence against Saul is not the answer to David's problems with him. David had to learn to trust in the providence of God. And I think that this is an awesome chapter about learning to trust in the providence of God because you and I need to do that. When we speak of the providence of God, it, it, it means the protective care of God. As he unfolds the things that, that he is doing, we can trust him. Isn't that good to know in the days in which we live? I'm like, what are you doing, Lord? I don't know what he's doing. We don't know what he's doing. We, we understand some things, but one thing we do know that in the midst of the things that are going on in the world, the Lord's worthy of our trust. He'll defend his people. He will look after us. He's the God who sees all things. He is the God who knows all things. That's why David could speak of the greatness of the Lord. Like he wrote Psalm 35 and he said this, who is like the Lord? In all the earth, who is like the Lord? He said this in, in uh, Psalm 35, verse 1. It'll be on your screen. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Verse 26, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice in my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. I love this. David says, Lord, he came to this place where he could write this psalm and say, who is like the Lord? And we have to ask this question, like, where did David learn that lesson? Well, one of the spots is right here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So let's check it out. This is in verse 1. Again, this is the second of three wilderness tests. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. They buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now Samuel passes here. Samuel's the last judge for the people of Israel. He was a prophet. He was uh, one who transitioned the nation from being led by judges into kingship. And, and Samuel had, we know this, anointed Saul to be king. He had announced the rejection 
of Saul when the time came because of Saul's disobedience. He had anointed David to be the successor of Israel's throne. Um, and, and it was Samuel's anointing of David and his relationship with David that had been at the source of much of Saul's pride and jealousy of David and his hatred towards him. And when Saul, remember when Saul first raged against David and it became clear that truly he was going to, his, his plan and his plotting was this, that he was going to murder his intentions were murderous towards David. Where did David go? David went to Samuel. That's where he went. Samuel was in David's corner all this time, you know. No matter what happened, no matter what Saul had attempted, David knew this. In my corner, I have Samuel, the prophet of the Lord. The man who's been speaking the word of God for decades to the people of Israel. He's on my side. But now he's dead. He had always provided for David a buffer against Saul, but, you know, he'd put brakes on Saul. He'd put the brakes on him from unleashing his full fury of wrath against David, but now Samuel is gone. The buffer is removed, and what we read is this, is that David made a decision when Samuel died to go further into the wilderness. He went into the wilderness of Paran. Which means this, that he, you know, remember this, Blake took us through this last week, he'd been taking refuge in the caves around the Dead Sea, but now the wilderness of Paran means this, that he went south and he made his way deep into the Sinai Peninsula to hide. Into the wilderness of Paran. And in fact, he set more distance between himself and Saul than Elijah did when he went on the run from Jezebel. He's way Deep in the wilderness. And it says this in verse 2. And there was a man, Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, of course, when we read Carmel, we think of Mount Carmel, right? That's where Elijah and the prophets of Baal had their showdown. But there's two Carmels in the scripture, two Carmels in Israel uh, this one is in, in southern Israel, okay, this, this town of Carmel, whereas the Mount Carmel that we are so familiar with is in the Valley of Jezreel where the Battle of Armageddon will happen. But this is way to the south. And here we find out that there is a, a, a man here who has significant wealth, a lot of livestock. Verse 3, now the man, now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Okay, so here we are, the beauty and the beast. Okay, there they are. Abigail, we find out she's godly. Uh, she's an a, a, a awesome combination of discernment and, and beauty. And discerning as she was, her parents had, I imagine, arranged her marriage with this Man who was a descendant of the family of Caleb, uh, her husband Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, good stock, good family stock. Remember, Caleb was like one of the 12 spies who had gone out and spied the land. He was one of two men, only him and Joshua got to enter from their entire generation into the promised land. And I imagine her parents thought, this is a good match. It's a descendant of Caleb. He's got lots of money. Uh, and Nabal was rich. But he did not have strong character like his forefather, Caleb. 
He did not have that character. He was harsh. The scripture says he was badly behaved. In fact, his name Nabal means, you know what it means? Fool. His name meant fool. That's what it translates to in English. So we got the beauty here and we got the beast. Okay, verse four. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. So we find out this. I mean, all the details aren't here, so we got to read between the lines a little bit. But it, it, you know, it doesn't seem like David and Nabal have signed some sort of business contract agreement with one another. But in some unwittingly, uh, unwittingly uh, way, they had become business partners. David and his guys are living in the wilderness. He's 600 men under David's uh, command. As Saul had put him in this place, David was a man who had led raids against all sorts of groups of people, especially the Philistines and the enemies of Israel. Da- David was part of many raids. His men lived in the vicinity of Nabal's shepherds that were grazing their master's herds in the area, and David had kept his 600 men from taking one single livestock, plucking the odd sheep from Nabal. Not only that, but shepherding in the wilderness involves some danger. You know, there's always Bedouins and marauders and different raiders cruising around, but in the presence of David and his men, The shepherds of Nabal and all of his sheep and livestock had been totally protected by the presence of David. It had been all positive for him. Like just having David around for Nabal was a good thing. He hadn't taken anything. It actually provided protection. So it's a good day for Nabal, you know. It's like his shepherds have come back. It's a time of year where they're Shearing the sheep, the money's rolling in, he's watching it, he's like, all right, sweet, I'm making some dough here, this is all good. The prophets are rolling in, and for David and his men, life in the wilderness was tough, so when David heard Nabal was shearing sheep, he said, would you do us a favor? I've scratched your back, maybe you could return the favor, maybe you could scratch mine and provide my men with some food. Now verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers? And give it to men who come from who come from I do not know where. So David's young men turned away and they came back and told him all this. So this is pretty harsh, isn't it? You hear all those mys in there? I tried to emphasize those. This is a guy who's got some pride going on in his heart and life. His attitude, as you read it, you can feel it. 
He doesn't simply just say no. He goes to lengths to express his disgust at this request, right? Who's David? He knows who he is. He called him the son of Jesse. But he said, who is he? Who is he? Everyone knew who David was. They all sang the songs. You know, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Everybody knew. David, Nabal knew about what had happened with Goliath. He knew David was in line for the throne. But he essentially expressed his rejection of David in favor of Saul. And so David's men return to him. They repeat in his ears the words of this harsh man, the words of the fool, Nabal. Verse 13, And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on a sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. So, you know, here's David. He hears the insults that had been hurled upon him because of a small request that he had made for his men. And this small request turns into a big problem. Nabal says, I've never heard of David. So David says, well, I'm going to introduce myself to you. This was, you know, this is a culture that functioned like strongly, right, on honor and shame. Want to sign my name? Well, then I'm going to. I can't believe it. Like, seriously. Okay. Anyway, sorry. It's good for us to laugh about it. What can we do, right? We have called them, but there's a little bit of an issue on the Sunshine Coast with garbage trucks, if you haven't heard. So they said they would sort it out, but apparently not this morning. So, well, yeah. Okay. They're taking out the trash. Anybody got anything they want to get rid of? Now's your chance. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this, this was a culture that functioned, right, like strongly on, this, on the concepts of, of honor and shame. And Nabal had shamed David, and he had shamed him to his men. It was a slap in the face. And, and so with 400 men, David strapped on his sword, and he left to wipe Nabal and everything he had from the face of the earth. I mean, what's amazing is, is that just a chapter before this, We've read David like restrained himself. He had the chance to kill Saul, okay? The king, the man who had really been pursuing him for a long time. And this is a similar situation with a lesser person. Let's just call Nabal exactly what he is, the fool. He's not the king of Israel. He's just a man. But something has been pricked in the heart of David that the Spirit of God needs to deal with. In his pride, and in his anger, in his honor being shamed, something rises in the heart of David where he says, I'm going to kill this guy. Now, verse 14, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, because he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
So this is in the meantime, you know, David's strapping on his sword, but something is happening back amongst the tents of Nabal, one of his young men who heard his master respond to David's servants. Uh, had the wherewithal to know, this is not good <laughs> to say such things to David. And he also knew the truth of what David and his men had done for Nabal and his sheep. It was quite true. David had been humble in what he told Nabal, according to this man's report. When David was present, nothing was missing. The servants were looked after. They were cared for. They had been, he said, David had been like a wall of protection for us, for the shepherds and their sheep. And so there was a level of obligation to just respond. And so knowing this, and knowing that Abigail was not just beautiful, but she was discerning, he, he went to her, and she hoped that she would do something before David did. So verse 18, then Abigail made haste. And took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and a, a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now, I love this, because to me, this is the providence of God. This is the providence of God. Both David and his men, this is the protective care of God for David and his men, and this is the protective care of God for the house of Nabal. Because Abigail and David just so happened to meet when there's a lot of trouble coming for everybody, when David is on his way to kill Nabal. And it makes me think this, like, don't you love it when the Lord just intervenes in your life? I know we've all had that happen where you're like, wow, God, I was on a not good path and you intervened. <laughs> or I was in danger and you intervened. The protective care of God. Look, we are those who believe as followers of Jesus Christ. We are those who believe in the sovereignty of God. Amen? We believe in the providence of the Almighty God. Luck. Flukes. Those are for superstitious people, not for the followers of Jesus Christ. Over the years, I've just worked to eliminate, eradicate that kind of talk from my lips. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in flukes. Superstition is not part of our vocabulary as we follow Jesus. Amen? No, we experience the sovereign hand of God in our lives. We experience as the people of God the providential care of his protection. Like David, we can say this, who is like the Lord? Sees all things, knows all things, and holds me in his hand. Clothes the flowers of the field, feeds the sparrows. I don't know how I got myself all worked up. Because the Lord's in control. Aren't you thankful for that? Church, we need to know that in the midst of the days in which we are living, we serve a God who is sovereign over the nations of the earth. He's in control. He's going to look after his church. He's going to look after his people. 
But we have to fix our eyes where they should be set, and that's upon Him. You know, I'm going to really start to rail on this in the coming time. You need to turn your TV off. Turn it off. They are false prophets and liars. Just look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. You know, my ears hear one thing, my eyes see another thing. I don't know what's up and what's down, but I know this. The Word of God stands true forever. Take that time. Be in the Word of God. In the evenings, when you like to watch the news, turn it off. Spend some time with the Lord. Our God is in control. He's sovereign, and in his providential care, he will look after his church and his people. And David and Abigail, they just so happen to meet. David's been in the wilderness. He's on a mission. Sword strapped to his side, and what does he see coming to him? Man, a beautiful woman, you guys. This is, this is the sovereignty of God. i got to make sure I get this guy's attention because he's going down a bad path. And, you know, I just think maybe if she had been ugly, he wouldn't have stopped. But she was beautiful. That's what it says, okay? I don't know. Okay, verse 21. Now David said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So here's David. Yeah, I mean, he's consoling his heart with vengeance. You ever do that? <laughs> David had vengeance on his heart. He is consoling his wounded pride and the offense against his good deeds with wiping the earth of Nabal and everything that belonged to him. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried, got down from the donkey, and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. This is, this is an amazing woman, isn't it? I'm going to pump her tires, man. She is like with Esther and all the great women of Scripture, Abigail. Verse 25. She speaks on, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't think Abigail is the first or the last woman to say, my husband's an idiot. <laughs> But just to be clear, guys, don't worry. I'm not referring to your wife. She went, you know, I'm pretty sure she wouldn't do that. <laughs> Mostly sure. Okay. She says, don't listen to my husband, David. He's being a fool. Verse 26. Now then, my Lord, this is her speaking. As the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil should not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, 
The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. What a speech, eh? I mean, like what a speech, like what a wise and discerning woman this Abigail is. So beautiful, David probably never heard a word. (laughs) Incredible humility. She says, the trespass is mine. Please forgive. Accept this present. All this food she had gathered and huge blessing to David and his men. Fourteen times she calls David Lord. Acknowledging he's going to be king. If Nabal's allegiance was to Saul the fleshly king, then Abigail's was to David, God's choice. And, and And she appealed to him on this basis. And and this is the key to this text right here, that that this was the second lesson of the wilderness for for David as he was being prepared for kingship. She appealed to him on this basis that he might not have blood on his hands. That when he finally did become king, it would not be on the basis of him making the way for his own salvation. That there would be no blood on his hands. That there would be no guilt on him. That his conscience would not hound him for the past mistakes. She said to him, the Lord has bound you in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God. And she waxed on like poetically. About David's, she pulls from David's defeat of Goliath by by the sling. And she says of him, the enemies, the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out like out of the hollow of a sling. In other words, David, when you become king, you don't want the guilt of blood on your hands. You don't need to do this. You don't need to go and kill Nabal and all of our household. Because God is the one who has given you the kingdom, and God is the one who will defeat your enemies. And Abigail encouraged David, trust in the providence of God. Church, trust in the providence of God. Trust in the protective care of him who has purchased us with his blood. And she said, when God has done all of these things for you, just I have this request. Remember me, your servant. Amazing words from this woman. And they landed. David received them. He realized he was about to make a big mistake to take these matters into his own hands. He had to trust the Lord. He had to trust the Lord to deliver him. Vengeance did not belong to him because vengeance belongs to the Lord. And this is the wilderness test that that I believe stops David from driving the spear through Saul. 
in chapter 26. The words of Abigail had so landed on his heart that he knew, I don't need to take the kingdom. God forbid that I should kill the Lord's anointed. He is learning to trust in the providential care of God. And it's a necessary preparation for kingship. I mean, we actually know this, that David eventually did. The Lord said, David, there's blood on your hands. Lord, I want to build you a house, a temple. And the Lord said to him, David, you're not the man. There's too much blood on your hands. You've shed too much blood. But here he is refrained. Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to me this day. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come and to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? Speaks words of blessing and peace over her. Verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal. Behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning. Okay, here, here's this guy again, fool, living for his stomach and for drink and for money. Those are the priorities of a foolish man. I, I, if... You know, we all get pulled into this from time to time, don't we? Like, if you are living for such things, we've got to be reminded that in Christ, there's so much more than just living for your stomach and for drink, for money. Such pursuits. Here's this guy, he's acting like a king, totally unaware of the only thing that is between him and death is his wife. And we, we can live for our appetites or we can seek the blessing of the king. And Nabal, he, he's, so, he's so drunk that his discerning wife just recognizes like it's not the, <laughs> this is not the night for this conversation. So verse 37, in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, in Hebrew, that's not a, that's not a nice statement in the original language, okay? That's like sanitized in English. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. He came as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Isn't that crazy? It's like, I don't know what happened to him. Probably Nabal had a stroke. I don't, I don't know. But 10 days later, he died, and the text is clear. David didn't strike him down. The Lord did. The Lord struck down David's enemies. The Lord defended David. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. 
The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. Wow, you know, well, we'll talk about that in a second, but I I just think this, you know, (laughs) he's no dummy, is he? No fool. David's no fool. Okay? She's beautiful. She's discerning. She loves the Lord. David says, I'm going to marry that woman. Okay? That's what a wise man does right there, okay? But, you know, I love this. David says this, that, that the Lord has heaped upon Nabal's head his own evil. You know that the Scripture tells us that all throughout? That the Lord will do that in defense of his people? Even the New Testament tells us that? That the Lord heaps burning coals upon the heads of the enemies of his people. The Lord's our defender. He is our defense. Lord defended David and he will defend you. And David, as he thanks the Lord, <laughs> says, takes the opportunity, says, this is a good time to get married right now. And verse 40, we'll wrap it up quick here. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take him to, sorry, take you <laughs> to him as his wife. And she rose And bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. And her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And then verse 43. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So David's first wife, we, we know she was the, the prize of defeating Goliath and killing the Philistines. Uh, Michael had been given to David, but while David is on the run, Saul takes his wife and gives, gives her away to another man. And now David has two wives, Abigail and Ahinoam, two wives. Double trouble. <laughs> no, that's, I'm talking about for Abigail, not for David. <laughs> uh, the wives. T- trouble for them. You know what? Uh, it's crazy that he makes this decision. You know, God does not ordain or condone this. You know, often we read these things in Scripture and we go, what is with David taking these wives and men like Solomon in these different situations? And God doesn't ordain such things or condone condone them in Scripture. It was like a common cultural practice. But what you do see in Scripture is this. Every time there is a situation of polygamy or where there are multiple wives, there is trouble and there is disaster, and the Scripture is clear to illustrate it. Hannah Noam became the mother of David's firstborn son. His name was Ammon. Ammon raped his sister. David's other son, the half-brother, Absalom, killed Ammon and disaster and sword went through David's house. Destroyed his own family, this decision. Two wives. And I think he gets up to something like 12. (laughs) And so, you know, many times in this study, I I pointed out the fact that We're not David. Hey, guys, we're not David in this story. David is a picture for us of Jesus. David 
it displays for us the character that is meant to point us to Jesus. But I would say this, this is a good spot to see ourselves in David right here. Whether it's the mistakes we make with regards to sin, or, uh, you know, sometimes our heart for our own vengeance, to be forgetful of God's grace, it's a good picture of you and I when we're in that spot where we just need to be reminded by a brother or sister in the Lord or by the church, hey man, God's your defender. You can trust him. And I just want to leave you with that point, that simple point this morning right there. Church, God is your defender. You can trust him. And maybe that word needs to be spoken over your marriage, over your family over your workplace, over your fear of the future, your anxiety about what tomorrow has. God is your defender. You can trust him. I don't know about you. I've done a lot of foolish things in my life. Things that I live with with regret. Times when I acted in vengeance. Times when I made stupid decisions. What we have here is a picture of David who is learning to trust. He is learning to trust the sovereign care of God who has called him to his kingdom and to serve in his kingdom. And the Lord needs David to know this before he comes to the place of the throne. I am your defender, David. David, I'm the source of your strength. I'm the one who has you in the palm of my hand. You don't need blood guilt on your hands. Church, Jesus already took our guilt, didn't he? Shed his blood to redeem us from our sins. Paid the ultimate price. We can trust him. He'll look after us. He'll defend his church and his people.